Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Blaine. I'm Anthony. And I've been meaning to attach a note to the beginning of one of these shows explaining why we are recording the way we are right now. Hopefully, you've noticed that the episodes are shorter and that the conversation is not as polished as it was. That's because we wanted to change how it felt to listen in on a conversation with Anthony and I as we try to find ourselves in the story of God and the kingdom of God in a hard time. So the motif that we have is a couple of guys in the front seat of a truck, which we are not right now, but it's Smoking the next cigars. Best thing. Right. Having a conversation about the way. So we're keeping in a lot of the false starts that professionals would edit out. We're being intentional to leave in the little back and forth between Anthony when we try to find where to go in, in the conversation next. I like how you said between Anthony versus between Anthony and Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> between Anthony and himself. <laughs> because we want to really invite you in to something that's happening in real time, to share out, out of our lives with God, but also to give you a window into how we talk about it and where our thinking is in process, because it's realizing these things in real time and living into them that's bringing the change. I gave our friend Tim one of my favorite quotes on pedagogy recently, which is that while there is much value in explaining the entire territory because it provides orientation and a, a seedbed for revelation later on. For the most part, people will never understand more than they can realize. So wisdom, knowledge grows at the rate of revelation. What you can actually take hold of, stumble upon, realize by the Spirit in the moment. So hopefully you're seeing us do that too. And that's why the episodes sound the way they do right now. Now, Ant-Man, where are we? In this conversation, not in this bedroom we're in. <laughs> we are in a bedroom. In this conversation, we are on our third episode on Jesus. And we're nearing the end of our long, long series on the story of God. Uh, last time, the first Jesus episode, we talked about Sin and death. Sin and death. And then in the last episode, what did we talk about? Almost entirely spiritual oppression. Oh, yeah. That's which we I... told ourselves we would not do <laughs> because we did not want to give disproportionate emphasis to that one theme. Yeah. That was my concern, and I think I'm responsible for the fact that we ended up talking about just how Jesus deals with spiritual oppression the whole time. So now we're going to talk about the world, the flesh, and just some, some concluding thoughts to this part of the conversation. The world. How does Jesus address the problem, one of the three, one of the unholy three things that is the world? Maybe it would be helpful to share what we know about what the world is and what we know about what the church has said the world is. And I'm totally kicking this one to you <laughs> because you asked me a question about biblical theology before we started that made me realize you should start. <laughs> 
What triggered this question is I was, I'm going to be using David Bentley Hart's New Testament translation. He chooses to preserve cosmos instead of translating it as the world. And it got me thinking, do either Blaine or I really know the full implications of the term cosmos in the scriptures? Uh, and it's complicated because there's layers of language. How does that layer over to an equivalent term in the Old Testament? I, I, we've done zero research on this. Like the Septuagint authors, the, where does cosmos come up in the Old Testament? Um, what, does it, what, what does it mean to each New Testament author? And an important like uh, side note here is that every New Testament author is free to use a particular word in his own way. So as an example, Paul and Matthew of the Gospel of Matthew use the word righteousness in very distinct ways. And that helps us, knowing that that's a thing, helps us not make mistakes in trying to understand holistically the scriptures. So that's all a caveat. That's all a way of saying we don't really know. We, we haven't done the work we should have done on the word cosmos. But what we do have is the way it's translated, the world, and the way that we've grown up in the traditions of the church, understanding uh, or, or developing an understanding of the world as a theological concept. And that is... <laughs> that's good stuff, man. Yeah, I was going to We've actually ask. talked about this in depth uh, with our original, like the three sources of... Yeah, we have a yeah. show on this. Yeah. So this is just a summary, summarized for me. Yeah. <laughs> so the world is, I, I feel like we're just tossing the ball back and forth here. Hot potato. I, you want me to say? No, I'll no. say. Go for it. Okay. For the most part, the world is not the same as the earth. The world is not the same as God's good creation. A main dimension of the world, I would simply n- call institutionalized sin. You know, we have a definition of the flesh that we used before that I'm going to try to paraphrase when we talk about Jesus' triumph over the flesh. But we talked about the world as an alternative to the kingdom of God. It's a story about reality in which the human self is at the center of the universe. It's what happens when human beings get to choose the good and the bad on their own terms. And it's what happens when they build what we called an iniquitous system, where in sin and failure and pride, in greed, in lust, humans build a world, build uh, a civilization, build political institutions, build patterns of buying and selling to feed their flesh, to get control and security apart from the blessing of God. And then literally represent that vision in the way that governments are structured, in the stories we tell ourselves about buying, in the kind of music that we make. So my two stabs, my twin stabs at uh, addressing the world in general, what are we talking about when the evangelists are going to tell us, love not the world? Uh, in part... I called it institutionalized sin. So a world that has been quite literally formed by disordered desire. And another way that I would put it, just to catch up, what's the problem here? It is a 
story about reality in which human beings are the main character and choose the good and the bad for themselves. So they say what power means and they get to change the definition, whatever they want. They say what justice is and they get to change that definition, whatever they want. They get to define freedom and change the definition whenever they want. And the fruit of that system is death. To further nuance this conversation, depending on which New Testament author you're reading, you might find that the world is something God loves, John 3.16, or something that it is passing away and that we should have no part in. And I think we have to hold all this together, that, that God made all, and He, the world is something that should be good, right? Our shared life together and all of these things should be fully in submission to Christ. And so what the Father does is sends, He sends Jesus into the world, and He desires to redeem the world. He desires to redeem all of us out of the world, and then the world is going to pass away and a new world is coming. And so a large part of how we could talk about what the church is, what the kingdom is, is the world to come breaking into the world now. I'm just going to read John 3.16 and let's riff on that for a sec. This is DBH's translation, so cosmos equals world. For God so loved the cosmos as to give the Son, the, the only one. We might say, for God so loved the cosmos, cosmos, For God so loved the cosmos as to give the one-of-a-kind, unique Son, so that everyone having faith in Him might not perish, but have the life of the age. For God sent the Son into the cosmos, not that He might pass judgment on the cosmos, but that the cosmos might be saved through Him. Whoever has faith in Him is not judged. Whoever has not had faith has already been judged, because he has not had faith in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the cosmos, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were wicked. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and does not approach the light, for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever acts in truth approaches the light, so that his deeds might be made manifest that they have been worked in God. So according to the gospel author John The Father sent the Son into the cosmos, not to pass judgment on the cosmos, but that the world might be saved through him. This is really good stuff. What stands out to me as you slowly read that passage is the set of juxtapositions that come at the end, the things that are set in contrast, truth and lies, light and dark. And God loves the world, the cosmos. And a person's response to that love is the ability to come out of lies into the truth, Mm -hmm. which is the person of Jesus himself. He is truth. It is to come out of darkness into light. That is also the person of Jesus, to let all things be informed by and shaped by him. So one observation, and you can riff on this, tell me what's missing in this, would be that in... In that passage, you get God's deep love for all things that he has made. And the amazing thing is that he doesn't even hate fallen humanity. He doesn't even hate corrupt institutions. He really wants to redeem them. And so when I look at something that 
it seems categorically evil. I have to remind myself that only Jesus is perfectly capable of distinguishing people from their sin, of distinguishing the goodness of human creativity from the evil inside the design. That word of God being a double-edged sword thing comes up here, but he can neatly divide the world as it is meant to be, all things. And so, he can say, yes, Jesus loves the world. And for us, that might be the shops of downtown Colorado Springs and the musicians you hear on the radio and a variety of other things. And at the same time, the sending of his son provides an opportunity for people to see themselves as they are, to come live in the light, to abandon lies, which implies that the world is a place both of lies and of darkness Mm. on its own terms. I think holding this all together is so important for how we live as the church in the world, because it's, it's common to only read, to only interpret the world as evil, as something to come out of. And then we pass judgment on the world. And um, here's a very concrete example. I think that capitalism is idolatry and is profoundly evil. I don't go around saying I'm anti-capitalist because I'm not really anti the world. I want to, as a person that has to live in the world, prophetically with the way I live, with the called out community that is my church, uh, show what the world to come is like. And in every part of my existence, Lord willing, increasingly over time, show what the world to come will be like. And that's not hating the world. That is keeping myself pure and separate from the world while simultaneously living generously and sacrificially in an outpouring way. So it's uh, we, we don't want to make the mistake of just um, trying to escape, trying to hide from the world, um, and just walking around being disgusted at everything that everyone does, uh, being disgusted at the systems of the world. But we do want to see evil for what it is and then realize that our task is to be like Jesus in the world, living sacrificially, prophetically. That is so good. Here's another John passage, but this time from the author of the epistles. So 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What do you want to say about that? Well, it's helpful to say, what's, what is the world? Oh, well, what's in the world, as John says, is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. So, uh, lustful, inordinate desires, and uh, a rebellion against God. Yeah. By the way, can we say that those things do relate to the disasters of Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11, which is as much to say, the I'm going backwards, the pride of life does relate in some ways to the Babel event. The lust of the eyes 
does relate in some ways to the Genesis 6 event. And I'm forgetting the first one is? Uh, desires of the Flesh. Desires yeah, the, of the Desires of the flesh, flesh. Uh, which get illustrated both in Genesis 3 and 4, where the animalistic urge to dominate, eat, define, both win out. Um, and all three are right there with Adam and Eve and the serpent and the fruit. Very true. Very true. So to summarize like this point, what does Jesus do about the world? My summary is he dies. The brilliance of Jesus is that he is the apocalypse. He shows things as they are. So the world is a failed attempt to recreate paradise, and instead we make a nightmare. But we are in ourselves very confused and divided, where we want, I will say, speak for myself, I want the things of God. I also really want money. Not every day, but man, that desire is slow. The feeling that money would solve my emotional problems is hard to rid myself of. And it's hard to look at what the church tradition calls the counterfeit power of the world and say, that's really not power. I mean, to tell people where to go, to go where you want, to have access to the resources and the technologies that you feel like you need when you need them? No, it's not. And so the, our problem for humanity is that we are partly attached to the world and that we are confused about what power is. One of the ways that Jesus triumphs over the world is by exposing its futility. In his work, he shows that domination is not power by allowing himself to be dominated. He shows that secure violence is not security by taking in the violence of humanity and letting it end in his body, taking it down to death with him. And so you get philosophers like our boy René Girard who point to the fact that the death of Jesus created a real nightmare for the human sacrificial system because it exposed the futility of scapegoating. Well, that's not the only thing that the work of Christ exposes. So the life of Jesus is part of a solution of the world because it shows things as they are. It shows life as it was meant to be lived. And that, as we participate in Christ, begins to purify the imagination. And then he beat the world, actually triumphed over Caesar and his kingdom by being killed by that kingdom so that vindicated in the resurrection, he would rise to take the throne above all things, which for the record is something Caesar was supposed to do. I try not to miss opportunities to take swings at Marcus Aurelius, <laughs> who is the paragon of apathia and stoicism and you know, Machiavelli loves him, Edward Gibbon loves him, your secular friends love him. Yeah, he was the high priest of the cults of Rome, who immediately upon his death was deified and entered the Roman pantheon as a god. 
Not to mention he was involved in interminable, brutal wars. And though the world loves to deny this, a persecutor of Christians. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius lived inside a story where the violent power of the emperor in expressed in massive military deaths and the cultic power of the emperor in these hedonistic, insane rituals represented the pinnacle of power. It's all a lie when we see the crucified God rising from death to be enthroned above all things. It's good. I love that you just called out Stoicism and Aurelius. It's extremely popular right now. It's uh, There's Ryan Holiday, who's kind of the, the startup guru, um, you know, writing the Daily Stoic and various books. There's a Stoic devotional that you'll find in lots of Christians' houses these days. So listen to her next time that you're being allured by Stoicism as a, a philosophy that will help you navigate the world that we live in. Come back and listen to what Blaine just said. My summary, well, to uh, I'm, I'm going to reread the end of that First John passage and then the First Timothy passage. So the end of the First John passage two seventeen, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then First Timothy one fifteen, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So what Jesus does about the world is he comes into it, he dies, he becomes the, the way by which we can have right relationship with God, with Yahweh, and then he gives the world hope. The world is passing away, it is doomed, and what the world needs is resurrection on the other side of that. The world needs the world to come, and he's given us a way to do the will of God and abide forever, and so what he's done is given the world Jesus, and then in Jesus, us, the church, those who are allegiant to Jesus, and we can bring, we can show resurrection life. We can show what the world should be like um, in the form and content of our lives together. I have a quote that supports what you just said. Again, this is from Tom Wright, and he's talking about how empires actually get overthrown. How does this happen? How does the kingdom of God prevail against the kingdoms of this world? And one thing that he says is, truth is what happens when humans use words and actions to reflect God's wise ordering of the world and so shine light into its dark corners, bringing judgment and mercy where it is badly needed. Empires can't cope with this. They make their own truth, creating facts on the ground in the depressingly normal ways of violence and injustice. Mm. Not good. That is good. So what he's saying there is that we have been saved from the world by getting a definite picture of life as it is meant to be lived, and then the other dimensions of the work of Christ, the purification of sin, the changed heart, the liberation from spiritual powers allows us to live in a new kingdom. So we get out, baby. Then we participate in the restoration of the world by being a living demonstration, an empowered expression of the age to come embedded in the world 
which exposes in the way that Christ did the futility of the world as a strategy for salvation, which fortunately and unfortunately does not take place by acts of domination and power. It actually comes via humiliation, suffering, going low, life poured out as an offering. I have another scripture passage that connects this conversation about the world with what Jesus does about the flesh. It also brings in the spiritual powers. So we can use this by way of segue into talking about the flesh. Fantastic. In Colossians 2, 20 through 3, 4. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste? referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, Blaine, you said that what Jesus does about the world is he dies. And that's what he does about the world and the flesh and the enemy in us. Uh, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, he invites us to die, to take up his cross, and then by... Uh, by enjoying life with him, to be raised and experience qualitatively resurrection life now. And he gives us the means of setting our, uh, seeking the things that are above, setting our minds on the things that are above, experiencing union with Christ. That's good stuff. This is a good transition, as you said, because it links the two problems. All three problems are linked, but in particular, right here, the flesh is in conspiracy with the world. And so I'm going to give you from before one of my working definitions of the flesh, in part because my mom liked it. So you're welcome, mom. Um, I think she got a call out last episode as well. She's getting calls all these because of our... For listeners, she's 25%. You, you speaking to your mom should be like the pineapple in every episode of Psych. Every episode, you should give her some love. Psych may be the last show that I actually watched. I loved that show. Oh, so good. Anyway, I talked about the flesh this way. The whole system of broken impulses, habits, deformities, and inordinate desires centered in the body connected to spiritual evil and shaped by both sin and iniquity that leads a person further into fragmentation and darkness. So the flesh, we said before, you remember, is not the body. We're not Gnostics here who need to, and we're not the Jedi Master Yoda, who's also a heretic from the Star Wars universe, saying, luminous beings, we are not this crude matter. We are this matter. And so... The matter is not the problem. The issue of the flesh is a broken humanity that has imprinted upon a broken world, validated in our habits, 
inordinate desires. I love, I've said it before, but it's in, I think, the second chapter of the Screwtape Letters where the man has converted, but the elder demon advises the younger, he's not out of the woods yet. You have many advantages because all of his habits are in your favor. A lot of the sin of the man lives in the body as a matter of habit, not the law of gravity. Kind of riffing on Dallas Willard there. Dallas, that's for you. So the flesh makes a person vulnerable to the entrapments, the slavery of the world because the flesh believes the world. So it is a thing, both in the work of Christ and an ongoing way, that we need to be saved from. You can hear the question coming to you, Anthony, so you have a second to get your thoughts together, but how does Jesus triumph over the flesh, and then how does that relate to the way that we live out the triumph over the flesh? He triumphs over the fallenness of the flesh by becoming incarnate and the purpose of the flesh, like us being embodied creatures, is to be the only true idol, right? The images, the image together of God. Jesus fulfills that call to image God perfectly, and then he invites us into that life. He makes a way for us to enjoy his life. And so the flesh is supposed to be the union of material life and spiritual life. There shouldn't be a distinction there, um, Ultimately. And I have a quote, uh, a long quote from St. Athanasius from On the Incarnation, in which he tells the story. I figured if we were going to talk about the flesh, we should talk about, uh, we should read from Athanasius talking about the incarnation. For this purpose, then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God comes into our realm, although he was not formally distant, for no part of creation is left void of him. While abiding with his own Father, he has filled all things in every place. But now he comes, condescending towards us in his love for human beings and his manifestation. For seeing the rational race perishing and death reigning over them through corruption, and seeing also the threat of the transgression giving firm hold to the corruption which was upon us, and that it was absurd for the law to be dissolved before being fulfilled, and seeing the impropriety in what had happened, that the very things of which he himself was the creator were disappearing, and seeing the excessive wickedness of human beings, that they gradually increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves, and seeing the liability of all human beings to death, having mercy upon our race, and having pity upon our weakness, and condescending to our corruption, and not enduring the dominion of death, lest what had been created should perish, and the work of the Father himself for human beings should be in vain, he takes for himself a body, and that not foreign to our own. For he did not wish simply to be in a body, nor did he wish merely to appear, for if he had wished only to appear, he could have made his divine manifestation through some other better means. But he takes that which is ours, and that not simply from but from a spotless and stainless virgin, ignorant of man, pure and unmixed from intercourse with men. Although being himself powerful and the creator of the universe, he prepared for himself in the virgin the body as a temple and made it his own, as an instrument, making himself known and dwelling in it. And thus taking from ours that which is like, since all were liable to the corruption of death, delivering it over to death on behalf of all. He offered it to the Father, doing this in his love for human beings, so that, on the one hand, 
with all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone, its power being fully expended in the lordly body and no longer having any sound, any stand against similar human beings. And on the other hand, that as human beings had turned towards corruption, he might turn them again into incorruptibility and give them life from death by making the body his own, and by the grace of the resurrection banishing death from them as straw from fire. Woof. What do you want to call attention to in that? That is a beefy chunk of text. It's beefy. As I was reading it, I was like, how, how do I paraphrase this or summarize it? It's so well said. Uh, I don't know how I can add to it. I know. It Jesus. should just go back and listen to it again. <laughs> yeah. And try to follow the line of thinking because these are the greats of the faith for a reason. Yeah. And then you'll get Anthony's summary here. That's the best approach. This is so amazing. that The incarnation is the solution to the problem of the flesh in which a fully human being, the only fully human one, God incarnate arrives on the scene as the next Adam to create a new humanity. And then we talked about how the calling of the apostles and the other events of Jesus's ministry, the purification from foul spirits, was remaking, as in Genesis, human beings and taking away the heart of stone, giving them on which the law of God was written. That is part of the purification of the flesh. And then Jesus died. Then he rose. Then he ascended on high. And in Christ, we actually, in dying, have died to the flesh. It's not our North Star anymore. And the amazing thing is that we live out the restoration of our humanity by living into the way of Jesus. Because the part that I skipped uh, was the actual life of Jesus. You know, you, you have the big events, but one of the main ways that Jesus healed and heals the flesh was by feasting at weddings, fasting for long periods of time, sleeping on the ground, going out at midnight to pray, passing the wine around in the new community of God, his people. And so by living life as it was meant to be lived, a person grows further into the nature of Christ. They become more human. Mm. I was looking for a quote in Father John Bear's book, Becoming Human, mm. but you really just ought to read that. It's not a big read at some time, but the thoughts kind of flow so continuously. And his, but his riff is that God is the only human one. So theosis, you know, over time, taking on the nature of Christ is actually the restoration of your heart and the restoration of your humanity. And so you will be fully human when you stand before God at the resurrection, hmm. right? Nevertheless, a great part of our life together right now is about the healing of our humanity and the removal of the destructive parts of our flesh so that we can be free. Mm. 
I'm so grateful for the incarnation. I'm so grateful that our faith is not a Gnostic faith, but is an incarnational faith. Just like when Yahweh at the mountain gave the people the Torah and established a new, a new nation. At Pentecost, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to the believers and establishes the church, he creates a new humanity. What Jesus does about the flesh is he, gives, he creates a new humanity. And in our current embodied existence, we're still prone to sin, but he gives us confession and repentance and forgiveness and rest, restoration, restitution. And I'm so grateful that the, the full revelation of the Father is an embodied man, Jesus. The philosopher's God does not appeal to me. The, the, the like, eternal ascendance into the abstract, I find to be quite nihilistic and boring. And the God who's revealed in Jesus, the man, is the one that I'm in love with. <laughs> Dude, that, your riff is getting me. I have another long quote. Uh, that addresses this so beautifully. And you're going to get three different writers in this quote. This is from Christopher West's book, The Love That Satisfies. Very good book, in which he riffs on Benedict XVI's first encyclical, God is Love, and also on the ancients and also in this passage on the catechism. But this passage so succinctly talks about the unity of spirit and body coming together in freedom that is the solution to slavery in the flesh. So we're going to start. Here's Benedict, quote, Man is truly himself when his body and soul are intimately united. The challenge of eros can be said to be truly overcome when this unification is achieved. And then here's the catechism, and then West is going to start riffing. As the catechism teaches, the unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body, i.e. it is because of its spiritual soul that the body made of matter becomes a living human body. Furthermore, spirit and matter in man are not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. It is only because of sin that we experience rupture and disharmony between body and soul. In the beginning, before our first parents fell into sin, the passions of the body harmonized perfectly with reason. The body submitted to the will's direction without conflict or rebellion. As a result of sin, however, the control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. In turn, the union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions, their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. So there's the flesh, a rupture between body and soul. Now, the path of integration moving daily to help Eros surrender to the infusion of agape is the task of authentic Christian spirituality. But even here, we often think in a disintegrated way. Authentic Christian spirituality is never lived at the expense of the body or in juxtaposition to it. Christian spirituality is always incarnational. It is an embodied spirituality. To cut off our spiritual lives from our bodily lives is to render the incarnation of God's Son meaningless. 
The word made flesh is the healing of that tragic rift between matter and spirit. And it is precisely by appropriating the redemption of the body and the life of the spirit offered by Christ that we experience the reintegration of our own flesh and spirit. The the degree of this reintegration in us will be the measure of our ability to live and experience eros in its true splendor. This is Christ's gift to us, and he longs to grant us this gift of an integrated life. Mm. I have a little summary. You go ahead, though. That that invitation to an integrated life, I just feel it's it's such a balm. It's such a comfort um, that we have the offer and the path of discipleship to experience integration in Christ. It's what my soul, my body longs for. Isn't it? If I were to paraphrase, summarize that section as it relates to the problem of the flesh, I would say, how, do, how does God address the flesh in the incarnation and, and the work of Jesus? How do we participate in that? We live the life of the Spirit in the body, meaning we live the life that Jesus lived in our bodies in time. So we feast, we fast, we enter into Lent, we enter into the celebration of resurrection. We make our bodies the focal point of our spiritual lives because they are. And by living the spiritual life in the body, in God's people, we actually become healed. So we have spoken at length about Jesus, and as I was thinking about this conversation, I realized I wanted to make an altar call. Uh, It's not something we do very often, either in our regular church life or on this podcast, but whether you know Jesus or not, especially if you don't, I want to tell you that you have to respond to him. He demands a response, gently, lovingly, but firmly and for sure. You, you must respond to Jesus. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his collection of essays, God in the Dock. What are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. The things he says are very different from what any other teacher has said. Others say, this is the truth about the universe, this is the way you ought to go, but he says, I am the truth, and the way, and the life. He says, no man can reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life, and you will be inevitably ruined. Give yourself away, and you will be saved. He says, if you are ashamed of me, if when you hear this call, you turn the other way, I also will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise." If anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it is your eye, pull it out. If it is your hand, cut it off. If you put yourself first, you will be last. Come to me, everyone who is carrying a heavy load. I will set that right. Your sins, all of them are wiped out. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am life. Eat me, drink me. I I am your food. And finally, do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. That is the issue. That's so good. I know that you have some thoughts on what it actually looks like to do that. But 
I love this moment of uh, responding and the things that are going on with an altar call is to come into right relationship with God. The dividing lines have been eliminated. Now it's time to respond. And not only once, unfortunately, fortunately, it's going to take a while here in the Protestant West to rid ourselves of the habit of thinking of salvation as a prayer that was said when you were 17, Mm. um, but instead as the vector of your life. And so, to hear these things, the response is to come, open your life to the light of God, accept His invitation, and then ask Him what it would look like to sort it out. So, what are, what are some things a person would do to do that? Yeah, the answer to that question is your whole life is inviting Jesus into every facet of your life and every belief you hold, the way you see the world, your experience of reality. The way I'm going to talk about that today is to encourage you to commune with Jesus. And I've got a, a scripture passage and a quote to read and then a prompt. So First uh, Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless isn't not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break isn't not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then I have a quote from de Young in his book, The Religion of the Apostles. Christ's death and resurrection fulfill and fill to overflowing the first Passover. In the Passover, the people of Israel were set free from enslavement to spiritual powers of wickedness and from death in a provisional way on a small scale. Through Christ's death and resurrection, the new Passover, those spiritual powers are defeated and thrown down once and for all. And the power of death is made powerless, just as being an Israelite meant participating in the first Passover through ritual and obedience, being a Christian means participating in the death and resurrection of Christ through sacramental worship and a life of obedience. As the Paschal Canon proclaims, today a sacred Passover is revealed to us, a new and holy Passover, a mystical Passover, a Passover worthy of veneration, a Passover that is Christ the Redeemer. So my exhortation to you listeners to believe in Jesus, to declare your allegiance to Jesus, and to commune with him, to take communion, to receive it in the church, to receive it in the midst of the saints, the holy ones, and to reject all allegiance and communion with other gods. When you participate in sin, you commune with, that is, you sacrifice to evil powers. So receive the healing balm of confession and repentance of your sins. Receive the forgiveness and restoration of Jesus. So, commune with Jesus. 
to close, let's do that. This was your recommendation, Anthony. And as I was thinking, an exercise from the book Invitation to a Journey, which I'd meant to bring in quote today by Robert Mulholland, came up. And Mulholland does a beautiful reading of the story of Jacob's return and confrontation with Esau um, in terms of an encounter with God that starts via solitude and silence. And his reading that is so fascinating is Jacob is heading back and he hears Esau is coming your way with an army. And so Jacob valiantly walks in front. No, he doesn't. (laughs) He puts the kids in front and the women behind them and then his servants and then all his animals. He puts literally everything he has between him and the problem to try to get security. And he literally hangs back, which is when a moment of transformation begins for him because he's alone. And he's alone with his fear sitting on a rock in the desert when the eternal second person of the Trinity shows up and asks him who he is. And I like to think that in that scene, there was probably a long moment of silence because Jacob owns his name, Deceiver. And so who are you? And Jacob, with the bleeding of his fortress, his moat of sheep, like far off in the distance, just owns, I'm a deceiver. And the Lord goes, yes, and then grabs him. And the, a wrestling match begins. What I love also about that wrestling match is it would be fair to call that rudimentary spirituality because humanity is made for the peace of embracing God. I think it's too easy to praise that scene. God is good in that scene. Jacob is very in process and you don't want to be like him. So it's like, man, I'm just wrestling with God. That may be so, but that's the telos of humanity is not to wrestle with God. It is to be the bride of Christ, the the peaceful covenantal partner. It is also to be the son relaxing in the arms of the father, the beloved disciple relaxing on the chest of Jesus at the Passover. You don't see any of that. So Jacob is a man in process, but at least, you know, some of the vector is there. He's showing up. And in that struggle, at the end of that struggle, he gets renamed. Born out of like the intimacy and born out of God's affection. He gives him a name that I think is a lot like Boanerges, Sons of Thunder, which again, we think sounds cool. It's not a compliment, but it isn't unkind. It is, you know, these are the guys who said, call down fire on these towns that offended us. And Jesus goes, you guys are mm, sons of thunder. I love that. That is, that is uh, an affectionate chide. I actually think that Israel's name, one thing going on there, there are many dimensions, but one of them is, you are wrestles with God. (laughs) You are not at peace with God. You are not the bride. You are not the covenant partner, but you're here. Um, And and then out of that, Israel, who has just been wrestles with God, goes and talks to Esau. 
which is a major indication of something has happened. It's not the final point in his story. His nature is not purified. He does some bad things after that. But it's a key moment that allows him to come home in a new way, establish a new home. And so our exercise out of that is we're just going to do the practice of sitting and for a, for a minute in silence with God and letting what Ruth Haley Barton calls the spiritual law of gravity take place, where if you were to swirl up a cup of sediment in water, it would be all murky and brown. Just leave it on the table long enough and all of the layers will filter down to their proper places and the water will be clear. The soul is like that. We're going around totally shaken up with all of the distractions and responsibilities and unaddressed frustration and fear about tomorrow and love of God and love of people all kind of mixed together. And it's in just slowing down, stopping. You just let that start to settle. And so, and then we're going to name ourselves as honestly as the deceiver did. She goes, okay, God, God comes to you. Who are you? And you, know, you, you may hear something good. You may hear like, I'm the guy who can't get to work on time. Like, I, and then listen for God's response in his name. So first part here, I'm actually going to give you a full 60 seconds. It will seem like eternity to just be still. Be still and let your frazzled mind just start to relax. You can even picture the different parts of your nature kind of filtering down to just the fear level, the bodily hunger, the, the excitement for your plans tonight. Let that just filter down for 60 seconds. Then put yourself in Jacob's position. You hear footsteps and a twig break. God is with you. Look over. Here is the face of God. Here's Jesus, who knows perfectly well who you are, but he still asks you the question, Who are you? And let the answer surface.
for me, the thing that just came up was just, I'm tired. <laughs> and sit with that for a second. You might hear, I'm great. I'm your son. That is wonderful. You might hear, I am needy. Or I am distracted. Or I don't even know. That's okay. Just sit with what comes up for a minute and watch Jesus' response. Open yourself to, when you name yourself honestly, how does the Lord respond to you? And then, if you can, uh, try to imagine the weight of Jesus' hand on your shoulder, the warmth of it. It's kind of the scent of his presence. And how does he name you? What does he say in response? You are My son, my daughter, my friend, doing great, I'm proud of you. You are seeking after God. You may be wrestles with God. And let yourself feel the affection with which God names you. Let yourself feel just the love flowing into you for a minute. It is relief to the adrenal system of the body to feel the affection of God. So just let it go down from your shoulder where his hand is, down your spine, through your hips, into your legs, knees, down towards your feet. Just let the life of God in the incarnation meet you and your humanity. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need to be healed, and we need to be saved. We do renounce the powers of this world and our allegiance to them. We ask forgiveness for our sins, and we renounce them. We pray to be covered with your blood. We receive your atoning covering. Look to your cross to disarm the debts and claims of the evil one on us. And we renounce the world. We turn our hearts towards you, God, to want you. We choose you. We name you as Lord. And we ask you to fill us and empower us to love you more. Cover us in our lives. Amen. We'll leave you with the words of Paul in Ephesians 2. And you being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk in accord with the age of this cosmos, in accord with the archon of the power of the air, of the spirit now operating in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh and in our thoughts, and were by nature children of ire just like the rest. But God... 
being rich in mercy, because of that great love of his whereby he loved us, and we being dead in trespasses, he gave us life along with the anointed. You are saved by grace. And in the anointed one, Jesus co-raised us and co-seated us in the heavenly places, in order that in the ages he might show forth the extravagant richness of his grace and kindness toward us in the anointed one, Jesus. For you are those who in grace have been saved by faithfulness, and this God's gift is not from you, not from observances, so that no one may boast, for we are his artifact, created in the anointed one, Jesus, for good works, which God prepared in advance, so that we might walk in them. Lord is coming, is coming now for song. Hard by Jesus, coming back again.